question is, could I explain no resistance? And is that the same as unconditional acceptance? Uh, just say what is it? What is it? What is it? Well, no resistance and unconditional acceptance are both, they're the same thing, but um, to explain no resistance, maybe the easiest way is to explain resistance. Um, resistance comes when there is any kind of judgment or aversion. Um, so whatever is happening or whatever is present, if, uh, uh, if we feel that we want to change that, make it go away, then that's a manifestation of resistance. Even if we don't do something to make something go away, if we have within us that strong feeling that we don't, we don't want it to be there, well, even a weak feeling that we don't want it to be there, then that's resistance to the, to the degree to which we uh, are judging and rejecting some aspect of what we're experiencing, that's resistance. So no resistance is, uh, is the opposite of that. It's being, it's being aware when there is resistance present and doing our best to, uh, to let go of that resistance and, and let that resistance disappear. It is exactly the same thing as, as uh, unconditional acceptance. Because when you don't resist, you accept. And if you accept unconditionally, it uh, means that if you're not accepting it, well, okay, I'm going to put up with this for the time being. That's not really unconditional acceptance. That is, uh, the conditions are, I don't really want it to be here, but I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I, I'm going to tolerate it for the moment. So it's not really unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance is, uh, it is a sort of surrendering to what is. But it's important to understand that these terms apply to the way things are in the moment. It doesn't mean that you uh, don't take actions to correct things that are wrong. You know, if somebody is, coming, uh, is causing harm to somebody else, then of course it's appropriate to take some kind of action. But even in the process of taking action to correct something, you can unconditionally accept what is happening in the moment. And that will actually make it much easier to deal, to, to, it's much easier to make some change. Suppose, for example, that somebody is doing something wrong, something that is harmful. Now, if we look at that and judge it, and we have a strong emotional reaction, that is, uh, that is the lack of acceptance, and that is resistance. So those emotions 
are going to, they're actually going to impair our ability to think clearly and ascertain what exactly is the best action to take. And they might actually interfere with our ability to perform that action effectively. So, uh, so acting to make a correction is not, is not uh, something that stands in opposition to uh, no resistance and to acceptance. It's something that actually is aided by no resistance. No resistance is no internal resistance to the reality that's already manifesting. And it comes from our, our realization, understanding that, that uh, what, what is cannot be changed, only what will happen in the future. And the more often we remind ourselves of that, then the easier it will be. Uh, another uh, teacher has made the statement, and it's, a, it's completely accurate, to resist what is is insanity. I get that right? Is that how it goes? Well, yeah. insanity. What's that? Yeah, insanity is resisting what is. Insanity is resisting what is. <laughs> so in a way, you can see that that unconditional acceptance is is the only sane approach to what is. <laughs> it leaves you most clearly capable of taking effective action if it's necessary, and and if there's no action possible. It's, it spares you the internal trauma of your whole resistance thing. Yes? When you said um, the resistance is a judgment and a feeling that you don't want it to be there, so no resistance is to not have that. That's right. So how could it be consistent to have no resistance Well, judgment, judgment is a, uh, a crude hammer we use in place of the scalpel of wisdom and understanding. The more wisdom and understanding we have, the less we have of need of judgment. Because you can, you can understand clearly the appropriateness or inappropriateness, the, the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness, the, the uh, ramifications of an event or an action. But judgment is something that we use in place of reason, or in place of understanding and wisdom. So you didn't mean the word judgment literally. You meant it sort of carries this emotion. I, I, mean, I mean judgment as opposed to wise discrimination. Okay. Or discernment, clear discernment. Good question, thank you. Oh. 
strong must be some energy. Yes, and that's correct. Okay, I'm not talking about the qigong energy in the outside. You know, I'm mm -hmm. talking about inside yourself. Mm -hmm. um, in the regular, regular uh, meditation practice. So there must be some energy to, to make it the thought strong. So can we extract those energy from the thought and make it use for the mindfulness? Do you have some, some skill or some technical? This is something that we, uh, in, in, we do in our, as a result of our meditation practice that... Uh, can you repeat that question? <coughs> oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> the, the, uh, the question was that when mindfulness becomes weak, that thoughts come up, and these thoughts have a kind of energy. The question was, is there a way that we can extract the energy from these thoughts to, uh, to aid in our mindfulness? <coughs> there is a phenomenon that happens as, as we practice that, of course, uh, for the first six stages of the ten stages of development of concentration and mindfulness. Through, throughout the first six stages, there are a lot of different kinds of thoughts and feelings and other awarenesses present. And it's very reasonable for us to look at that and see that, well, indeed, these thoughts are coming from another part of our mind, another mental process. Uh, uh, each one of these thoughts involves some mental process that has its own task to perform and its own agenda to fulfill. And so when we sit down to meditate, we have a mind that consists of many different mental processes with different tasks and agendas. <clears throat> and so when we try to focus the mind on one thing, we find these other processes are trying to pull us in other directions. So this, this is a way of describing the typical situation. We keep trying to refocus the, the energy of the, and the uh, activity of the totality of the mind towards a single objective, while the individual parts of the mind keep trying to go in their separate way. The interesting thing that happens uh, when we pass from the sixth stage to the seventh stage is we have the experience that there's no longer so many different thoughts arising uh, that our sense of hearing and our body tactile sense and our different senses aren't intruding so strongly with other sensations into the field of our concentration and awareness. Now, when we're thinking in terms of the meditation object and the field of observation, <coughs> we would say <coughs> it has become single-pointed because now the attention remains focused on a single point and the focus becomes more or less exclusive. It's, it's omitting all of these other things that before were somehow being still included in our awareness. <coughs> Excuse me a moment here. <coughs> but another way 
that we could look at the same thing that's happened is we could say our mind has become unified. Now all of those different parts of our mind, those different mental processes, instead of trying to draw the attention away to other activities, they are now sort of coalescing so that all of the different parts of the mind are either supporting the primary objective or else they're at least not competing with it. They're at least not disrupting it. And so this is a very useful and helpful concept to think that, that when we reach the seventh stage and the higher stages in the development of concentration and awareness, what we have done is we have unified our mind from a pack of different impulses trying to go in different directions and do different jobs to all being focused on the same one at the same time. When that happens, we experience the mind becomes very clear, <clears throat> the energy becomes stable, the mindfulness and the concentration both become effortless. In other words, we're not expending effort to be, uh, to sustain the attention and be mindful. We're not exerting effort against these other parts of the mind that are trying to go somewhere else. Now, essentially, all of the energy of the mind becomes available for the single task. So, in that case, we're doing exactly what you suggested, that we're the, uh, the energy of the thoughts, now, instead of being something that we have to use other energy to, to uh, counteract, now is in support of the concentration and mindfulness. So this is uh, a very good way to describe the goal of the practice. We are striving towards unification of mind. We are striving towards that place where all the different parts of our mind are working in harmony and cooperation. <clears throat> and at that point, uh, that's when you enter the eighth stage of the practice is that concentration and mindfulness become effortless. Seemingly effortless, at least. There's no longer this aspect of constantly being vigilant, because otherwise some thought process or some other mental process is going to take the attention away. Or constantly being vigilant because the uh, mind is going to start sinking into dullness. It's now effortless. You don't need, don't need that same degree of vigilance. Don't need to be on guard. Don't need to be always making corrections anytime you feel the attention drifting, anytime you feel the mindfulness weeping. It just happens so gracefully and easily. So that's yeah, how you when, do it. When you get the effortless, <coughs> then the thought won't come, won't come in? That's right. When, when it's effortless, <coughs> there is still some slight tendency for. But when, 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 even though it's there, there and when you when you awake, it's still mm -hmm. coming weak. Then the thoughts still sleeping. If if your awareness becomes weak, then other thoughts and things like that will will begin to come in, but. If you're practicing at the stage of effortless concentration, 
then uh, as long as there there is as long as there is a clear intention and purpose to what your conscious awareness is doing, then uh, that won't happen. When the meditation ends and you get up and you begin to relax the mind, then these other thought processes will begin to come up. Uh, you can elect to remain mindful, in which case uh, they won't there won't be this struggle for these thoughts to take over and become the new direction and the new focus of the mind. Rather, they will, they will come up, they'll be acknowledged by mindfulness, and then when they are let go of, they just dissipate on their own. Or, you know, when you're not in meditation, if you've already got up from meditation and the thought that arises is one that uh, is appropriate and reasonable, then it's allowed to go ahead and proceed and you mindfully observe the, the development of the thought and the intentions and the actions that might come out of that. So this is this is where you this is the place where you are when you're out there doing things where the thought comes that, well, this would be a good time to have a cup of tea and all the other thoughts that come with that. But you you, you uh, are mindful of the intentions, you're mindful of the purpose, you're mindful of the process. Yeah. Well, I have a uh, really tricky uh, experience. Yeah. How that the, this, when, 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 when I'm there, when I'm there, and the, still, I still have the, the, I still have the, the meditation strategy, strategy in mind. Yeah. Right? So how how decide how to do this how to do that, and then when the mindfulness is getting weak weak, the it's the 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 thought is very tricky. It's connected to to the the strategy. Like a, like a, like a you you have strategy say oh we gotta do something and then they thought they oh because they saw sleeping say oh yeah. because something like a uh, dharma thing and something dharma thing and. and and then lead it be to become a, a Dharma thought. Right, start to have a Dharma thought. Yeah, and then I discover it. Yeah. And then I, 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 I make it away. You know, you just automatically get it away. And then when I discover it, so it's that kind of that it's very tricky to stick in the, the thought other than, than the strategy. Yes. Well, uh, let me just. Uh, take this to a different thing. Uh, in the process of developing your concentration and mindfulness, for a large part of that time, there is some sort of verbal thinking taking place and sort of a narrative or commentary. And uh, that can be useful. You can incorporate that into your practice as a strategy for helping you to stay more focused than you would be. So. Yeah, if you if the inner narrative is making comments on the quality of your mindfulness and that of which you're being mindful, and you can say, okay, well that's fine. I'm still, you know, so I, I I'm, I'm thinking, but I'm thinking about what I am being mindful of. If you're being mindful of the breath, you can think about, oh, okay, you know, there, there's there. I really saw the beginning of the out breath really clearly. Okay, I'm going to try to see the, uh, the end of the out-breath just as clearly. Oh, I didn't quite. Well, next time around I'll grab it. Okay, oops, I'm already missing the beginning of the in-breath. 
And that's all right. It's helping you stay with it. At least you're not thinking about lunch. Yeah, but but, we but the risk, the weakness of this, the <laughs> risk of this is always that once you give the little yap 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 the opportunity, the freedom, the license to go, it's just a matter of time before it starts yapping about something else. And if you were used to letting it happen, it can take you off somewhere else for quite a ways before you realize that it's doing it. So it is both. Uh, it, it is helpful and it's useful, but it does have that risk and that weakness is that there can, <laughs> it can definitely take you away. Is that basically addressing what yeah, you're talking Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of my advice to a meditator, I would say uh, use that. Like, for example, if you're having trouble uh, concentrating on your meditation object, because there is a lot of verbal thinking going on. Go ahead and see if you can get the, the, that verbal thinking to be about the meditation object. Use it at that point. But, but remember that sooner or later it's going to, sneaky, sneaky process that it is, it's going to carry you away on something else. So as soon as you feel like you don't need it anymore, you know, let go of it, let it slip into the background, start ignoring it. That's helpful to you. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Yes, Michael. Um, the answer to my question seems kind of obvious, but I just wanted to confirm with you. Um, you said that it's very common for people to achieve certain levels in meditation, and then and then there might be regression, and regression. I'm thinking has a direct relationship to do with uh, how I, how we live our normal life, how mindful we are, how much greed we have, how much craving, mm -hmm. uh, how much anger. You know, if everything has a relationship with how my how calm our mind can be. So, so if we live a very clean life, that that naturally induces progression of meditation progress. And if we start having a lot of uh, craving, naturally our meditation less, uh, what would, would probably be the risk? Would that be correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, that, that is true. And that's, you know, that's the very pragmatic side of uh, practicing virtue and practicing the perfections of generosity, virtue, uh, patience, and uh, uh, joyful effort, right effort, is that these very directly support your meditation practice by keeping you in a non-agitated, non-grasping, non-greedy, uh, non non-aversive kind of state of mind. So, so it, it seems like uh, the Buddhist practice is not asking us uh, to be compassionate to the point of some some extreme stories of somebody slicing off their arm to feed a hungry, you know, a wild animal. It's not that. It's really, it really comes down to how do we, how do we uh, achieve enlightenment through, you know, uh, conditioning the mind. It's the, uh, the main objective is not to go all out and then do all these yeah. extreme sacrifice, you know, sacrifices. Yes, because you can, you can help many more people much more by uh, 
by achieving your own awakening, or even just becoming a very good meditation practitioner uh, and being able to uh, share what you have learned with other people, than uh, doing something so crude as sacrificing your life or your body or things like that. Um, so. yeah, because the Buddha never encouraged people to be vegetarians. And uh, actually, in this world, there's so many things worth um, devoting time and effort into. But it, it seems like he in intentionally omitted a lot of the, 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 the other worthwhile endeavors to focus on how to achieve enlightenment. Because, because you know, I, I find a lot of contradic contradiction in myself that although I care a great deal about the animal's welfare, but, you know, I also eat meat. Yeah. You know, I, I have a hard time stopping eating meat. So, so there's all kinds of these contradictions, but it doesn't seem like that, that's an objective that the Buddha is, uh, it, it wants us to pay close amount of attention to. I would agree with you there. To, uh, you know, there are all kinds of good reasons for not eating meat, and one of them is recognizing that, you know, that uh, as long as you eat meat, there are animals that are going to be killed. But there are more important things than that. Not that that's not important, but there are more important things. So if it comes down to a choice, between the more important things and the less important things, then you might uh, you might continue to eat meat or other things like that. But what you first said is really true that uh, you need to you need to purify your virtue. And if you if it comes to the point, and I think this has happened with a lot of people, it comes to the point where. Uh, they find that eating meat produces an agitation to their mind because they feel like it's something that they shouldn't do. It begins to affect their, their conscience. And at that point, it would be foolish of them not to quit eating meat. And let's say, you know, well, you know, there's actually no reason. If, if something's causing you a problem, especially if the problem is causing you interfering meditation and your spiritual practice, then what on earth reason could there be to continue doing it? Yeah. Um, one of my co-workers, sometimes she goes on a high-protein diet, which is, is, eats a lot of meat, mm -hmm. and I can tell her aggressiveness after, when she goes into this diet, I stay away from her. She becomes <laughs> mean and, and uh, aggressive, and she just becomes very unhappy with herself. And I yeah. notice a difference, I've been working with her for 10 years. And every time she goes into this diet, it's like, I stay away from it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, I sense that I have more aggression when I eat more meat, too. Yes, uh, uh, yes and that's, that's something that a lot of people, you know, and as a matter of fact, a lot of athletes who do things like play football and things like that, deliberately eat a lot of meat because they feel like they need a lot of aggression. So, you know. But we don't need aggression to, to be meditators. And also, uh, certain foods are recognized as being more likely to uh, create uh, both physical and mental disturbance. And so at, at some point for anybody, attention to, the desire, to their diet might become a very appropriate part of their practice. And, and certainly I would recommend if you, if you feel that your diet 
just like any other daily habit. If you feel like your diet is starting to have an impact on your practice, then you know, take some kind of appropriate action. So. Thank you. And speaking of diet, of course, it's time for lunch.